Welcome to Climate Quandaries, and thanks for stopping by. The intention of the podcast is to create a space for balanced and thoughtful explorations of how climate science looks and feels from the inside, at this moment where climate factors are so important on so many levels. Although the guests are highly accomplished in their research, here we widen the aperture and discuss big picture lines of thinking. All of the discussions represent personal, not institutional, views, and in fact, that close examination is hoped to be a large part of the appeal. Here's episode one, my conversation with Radley Horton, Lamont Research Professor at Columbia University. Welcome, everybody, to the very first episode of Climate Quandaries, which is a podcast about the big philosophical questions raised by climate change, featuring one-on-one conversations with climate scientists. And just to finish the blurb in another sentence here, we traverse the personal-professional interface to explore how scientists reckon with what it all means for the future of humanity from the long-term planetary level to individual life choices. So it's a high-level exploration of some of the philosophical as well as ethical dimensions of climate at a moment when, in some respects, I would say that intellectual and cultural momentum toward our understanding and our reinvention of the human relationship with the environment is greater than ever. In other respects, this momentum remains rather plodding and our increasing awareness of the tightness of our relationship with the natural world, I think, raises a lot of questions that we, as scientists, as well as everyone, has to grapple with. And the concept of the podcast is to explore how how scientists view that relationship sort of from their standpoint as scientists, but blending that with with their personal views and practices. So scientists speaking for themselves. And I invited Radley Horton as the first guest, first and foremost, because he's an agile and and very broad thinker, and he tries to stay ahead of the curve, especially in terms of understanding and anticipating those deep-rooted interactions between climate and society in various ways, and thinking about how to approach them in ways that are logical, consistent with long-term values, and so on. And he's very experienced in discussing aspects of climate change from both the technical and scientific, as well as the more social and cultural sides. Plus, on top of all that, I know him quite well from my time at Columbia. Radley, thanks so much for being the first guest on the podcast. Thank you, Colin. I'm uh, honored to be the first person to to speak on what promises to be a really exciting and um, fresh approach that you're taking in this podcast. I think if we can just go one level down, that'll really help open people's minds and I think we'll learn a lot ourselves as well. So one of the first topics that I wanted to get to, knowing your interest in various topics across climate change, as well as specifically the managed retreat aspect of natural disasters, is how you think about the balance between the value of trying to protect people from growing climate hazards versus maintaining existing place-specific cultural traditions. And maybe that's a more specific case of a more general question about what climate change means for our stewardship of the natural world and, I guess, specifically the places people live and 
the natural surroundings in which cultures and individual lives and communities have, have been developed. So there's a lot there. So we can go back and forth and just pick off whatever piece you find most attractive uh, first. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so when we talk about this idea of like managed retreat, planned relocation, it cuts right to the, the center of a lot of the, as you say, philosophical challenges that, that I grapple with. On the one hand, this kind of sense as a climate scientist that, you know, we have some information that it's important to share with the world about how profoundly some of these risks and hazards are going to change in the future, right? How just a small amount of sea level rise gives you a lot more coastal flooding, how turning towards your work, just a small increase in average temperature can mean pushing you towards more of these unprecedented, really deadly heat waves. So on the one hand, this sort of information deficit model, whereby scientists maybe have this emerging knowledge about changing climate hazards and risks, it's very appealing to want to share that information as, as widely as possible. And I think it's a simple fact that there are a lot of people living in areas, whether it's you know, certain coastlines or some of the areas you've studied at the interface of you know, really high heat and humidity, where there are going to be certainly an increasing risk of death in the future. People not being able to get away in advance of a, of a hurricane, power failure, uh, setting up situations where air conditioning failing would, would lead to death. And certainly it's not just, if you will, the loss of lives, although that's important enough, but also the economic implications of people having these repeat losses, losing their home, losing their livelihood. So, so from one perspective, how could we not, as scientists, be tempted to say, here's this information, let's use it to help society decide a lot of things about adaptation and, and how people want to live, including whether they might want to move or not from where they're, they're currently living. And to be sure, there's, there's a role for climate information and climate scientists in that, uh, no doubt about it. So wh where's the tension, right? So far, I've just talked about climate scientists with information that's you know, presumably useful to share. Well, you know, one of the challenges is that, you know, I've found as a scientist, sometimes there's a danger that we don't think enough about the local context. We don't understand the constraints, the values that people have that differ so much around the world. Climate is just one piece, albeit an, an important piece that fits into that cultural, economic, religious tapestry. So in a sense, you know, as we engage with vulnerable communities, some of which have a history of quote unquote experts coming up with policies that led to unjust practices like redlining, for example. There's a skepticism about the external, maybe university experts coming in and saying, we have this knowledge that will predetermine, in a sense, whether or not you should be living in a place. So, fortunately, you know, we scientists are getting more nuanced. We're working with these communities. But we're not doing it, you know, nearly enough. There's still, um, as you know, a lot of well-meaning scientists who haven't been exposed enough to this sort of cultural context and still maybe overweight, frankly, the importance of our science in this decision-making um, relative yeah. to some of these, these other things. Transdisciplinary science is hard, for sure. Everyone is talking about it, and yet it seems so hard to really truly put into practice, especially when you start getting down to the levels of demographics sub-regions and so on, like you're alluding to very rightly. Yeah. Yeah. And where do our skill sets fit in? You know, at some point, 
our contributions just in terms of listening and maybe sort of softer social skills, potentially as important as the kind of climate climate projections. And be interested in your perspective too, but really, really it's a blend, right? There's a need for our science. We have to, to some extent, specialize in the things that, that we know best. That's what people want to hear from us. But it, as you said, with transdisciplinary science and then with the sort of broader co-production, uh, vulnerability-based approaches to decisions, we have to go in there with this attitude, certainly, of, of listening and all sort of working together across, across science and policy. So it's exciting, but challenging, right, to, to sort of see where, where we fit and how we can best contribute to these wicked problems that sometimes seem almost impossible to solve, you know, at least on our more down days. For sure, yeah. Of course, there is a there is a dimension here where the maintenance of traditions, and, and I'm thinking about a variety of things ranging from, you know, economically self-sufficient smallholders to recreational activities, where those will become very difficult, or at least more and more untenable to practice in the sort of original historical ways, at least in the seasons and places where they have been practiced. You know, to the extent that that's true, it's necessary in a way to provide the climate information to say, if you want to ski, if you want to raise rain-fed crops, whatever the example is, you only be able to do it X number of years per decade under a particular future climate scenario, for example. But there's also yeah. conflicts where I'm thinking about the, the one island in Louisiana, I believe, Ile Jean Lafitte, and there's many, many others, but that's been mm-hmm. seized upon as one of the preeminent examples where people can still live there in the sense that they're not being killed, they're still, they're still there, but it's more and more expensive to maintain the infrastructure and rescue uh, missions and so on when there are high sea level events or tropical cyclones that impact them. And, and that's a very poignant case because, of course, that's a very, there's a community with deep roots in that area and has experienced uh, the same sorts of attempts at top-down scientific yeah. Quote, quote unquote scientific, but really sort of technical engineering decision making. And so there's a right. real, really deep suspicion among those types of communities. So that represents two ends of a spectrum in a way. There's places where our knowledge is really essential and mm-hmm. beneficial. And there's places where it's beneficial in some sense, but that wouldn't necessarily be seen that way by the people who are purported to be being helped, at least right. on a and short term that- time scale. Right. And there's always that question of how the science is communicated, how it is, how it's used by mm-hmm. policymakers, who has the power to make the decisions for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, more generally what, what you're alluding to, you know, to my mind is, is this idea that, well, for one thing, it can be hard to say what the extent of, of adaptation might be, right? Maybe we don't sort of fully know the answer of the extent to which Air conditioning, for example, might be able to mitigate some of the risks of, of the most extreme heat in the future. You know, you, I'm sure you have a lot of thoughts on this. It, you know, certainly there's going to be more situations where the power simply can't go out, right? Or you'd have these, these sort of catastrophes of, of people overheating. You know, if we go far enough out into the future, how many sort of outdoor laborers will there be in some of those places? Will there be automation, right, of some some types of outdoor labor, which itself would have a bunch of costs, right? So it's we don't want to sort of overprescribe and say adaptation will be impossible. On the other hand, you know, you just gave a, a great example in Louisiana of where there are real reasons to think that there, there are real limits to adaptation, if you will. So who decides, who defines what the limits to adaptation are? 
as technologies change. And then also who decides sort of what aspects of livelihood, I guess, are sort of most important to a community, to the extent to which they could they could switch to another source of revenue, another job, which itself, in a sense, is a, a type of adaptation. So all this to say that I think we're, we're talking about a spectrum. I think we're, we're agreeing. And it, it can be tough as a scientist. You know, you don't want to overstep. But my instinct, which I suspect is yours, is that it is important that we continue, maybe not to say it'll be impossible to live there, but to really emphasize, because I think there's still people who don't fully appreciate, again, the extent to which a small shift in, in, in temperature or, or sea level can just completely rock the, the statistics mm-hmm. of what's expected. And, and a lot of the pricing and, and the risk assumptions, the insurance, the reinsurance are already probably based on a climate of the past, right? We've already sort of moved, yeah. um, moved beyond that. Yeah, those are really great points. And to build on them a little bit more, I would say that my sen- my sense is that the moral judgment that I've seen rendered in the popular press and to the extent these things have been talked about explicitly that I've encountered anyway at scientific conferences and, and in papers, is that there's really a strong connection between how prescriptive we can be regarding people's actions and their demographics, by which I include the economic capabilities and and other features of their ability to make decisions and move around. And I I brought up the eel Jean Lafitte example, which is, of course, on one end of the spectrum. And another one, I could raise like a, a rich coastal area, for example, I know that's been talked about in places like Connecticut. But since I am currently living in Southern California, I thought it might be interesting to bring up that as an example, which you know, which involves a, f- a few layers of complexity. And just now I was thinking about why is it that in a water, a very water stressed place, it's taboo to say that the population in this area should be maybe limited, or you know, we should think about ways to discourage people from moving to a place that has such severe water uh, limits. And the engineering solutions are very expensive. And I think it's maybe because there's a, well, there's a few things going on, but I think maybe it's because there's a sense, I would argue that from a historical standpoint, people have moved to Southern California more or less voluntarily, and there's not a deep historical rooting of a lot of the people. But then if you dig deeper into that, it's actually not necessarily the case. There are a lot of people who are here, international immigrants, for example, who are here for the same reasons that people have moved anywhere really throughout history. And mm-hmm. even people who move domestically for economic opportunity, is that really so different? And besides, there are many other places that have different types, you know, everywhere in the U.S., not to mention the world has different levels of natural disasters. And I mean, New York has serious issues. And should people really be living in downtown Manhattan or something or the Netherlands? And anyway, so I yeah. kind of on, I just think it's really fascinating that on, from a sort of superficial perspective, maybe here in Los Angeles, I live in a dangerous place that maybe it's maybe irresponsible to be here. But on the other hand, maybe it's not irresponsible. So I think it's just very hard to make these kinds of moral judgments. And I guess it comes down to who's doing something, why are they doing it? And do we feel comfortable as scientists or policymakers strongly recommending a particular course of action to them? Does that all, what what is your reaction to some of that? (laughs) Yeah, that that makes makes me think about a lot of things. One, you know, how similar is it to compare to decisions about individual behavior, smoking, driving well over the speed limit, some of those yeah. types of things. When you sort of initially prompted 
the California example, the first thought that popped in my head is, is, is this, I think you probably find this everywhere around the world, but do you find it more in the United States and perhaps in, you know, what's, what's currently Mexico to the extent that there's you know, also a large population in Southern California that's been perhaps uh, overlapping with, with Mexico for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this sort of ethos of, you know, westward expansion, um, probably a deeper human phenomenon, but maybe it, maybe it's sort of amplified to some extent in the West. I don't know. And then I guess there's also just the more sort of practical questions of, they're sort of specific to the example, but maybe actually steer us away from your philosophical question. But, you know, if you were to reduce the agricultural lands or the or the use of things like almonds that demand so mm. much water. My sense is maybe California's kind of moved away from mining, you know, water intensive mining. I could be wrong about that, but I think right. Arizona maybe, you know, I think, you know, mining is still a major use of water. So yeah, I mean those are those are interesting dimensions to it too, which I guess in a way play into questions of distribution of wealth in complicated ways. Absolutely. It's an interesting, interesting question. To take a slightly different shade of questioning on the same topic, I was wondering, to put it very briefly, when we are thinking about people who are living in a particular hotspot of a climate hazard, whether or not it's increasing in frequency or severity, to what extent should we let people let, in, in big, bold quotation marks, to what extent should we let people choose to make bad decisions. And I mean, particularly in cases where funds could be found to make better decisions, perhaps kind of restricting this to the United States. It's kind of well known now that it has been well known for a while that a a large majority of the the casualties from tornadoes, you know, are are attributable to people who live in mobile homes who would presumably prefer to live in more solid structures if given the affordable opportunity or outdated infrastructure, even around, you know, New York t- subway tunnels f- flooding and stuff like that. I guess, to what extent is it acceptable to allow a certain level of failure of infrastructure, whether it's damaging property or injuring people? And then maybe secondarily to that, is it one of the most critical ethical aspects of climate change to really push the needle on reducing vulnerability to these extreme climate hazards in these sort of minority of places and cases that probably represent a, a majority of the damage and, and lives lost versus more broad societal sort of things that aren't like exactly targeted to the places we know are most vulnerable. Right. So sort of optimizing the efforts to some extent by those places, uh, you know, to those places where we think the vulnerability, which is, of course, a blend of of the hazard and, and the sort of other conditions that people find themselves in. There's a distribution of vulnerability and we know what's at the end of it in the most vulnerable case. What is the moral exigency of that situation? Yeah. And one of the challenges, of course, is that there's, you know, so much vulnerability uh, in so in so many places. But I do think there's a case for focusing on examples. I mean, one of them arguably might be parts of California, right? Some of the aging dams that we hear about. Mm-hmm. Let's just pick Sacramento area, for example. Um, that's, you know, arguably a very, very high risk, a high risk area. But there are so many, right? That's one of one of the challenges. And, you know, you mentioned infrastructure specifically. I think that's that's really important how infrastructure can really protect us, but can also 
make us more vulnerable, both when we become very dependent on it and when it becomes, for example, that wall that we choose to build behind, uh, sort of increasing the moral hazard if that infrastructure fails. And in a society where we've sort of woefully underfunded our infrastructure, given it you know, the opposite of TLC in so many cases, the risks are, are really high. And that gets into sort of broader issues of tax rates, for example, and our choosing to allocate funds, but there are some, you know, huge risks out there. And then, and then how does a society uh, think about those risks? Is it easier to key in on the hazard and risk associated with an event that happens once every couple of years that might not be super high consequence, as opposed to say that event that might only happen once every 50 or 100 years, very hard to know the exact number, right? Especially in a change in climate that could mm-hmm. produce catastrophic consequences. Probably we don't do well, I would think, in society at, at managing either of those of those sort of types of risks. But perhaps, you know, we want to get a different expert in here, but perhaps we do particularly badly at those somewhat lower probability, that one in 50 year, one in 100 year event that can be really catastrophic, right? So there's, and there's so many examples of how climate change is already, we think it's a one in 100 year event, but, you know, it may already be a one in 15 or 20 year event, certain high water level for a coastal city or what about heat waves, right? Something you study a lot. I'll put out a statement there, which you can push back on as if not scientific <laughs> enough. You know, it's another of these examples where I feel like we as scientists are just sort of trying to catch up and keep up with, with what we're observing. It's a little like the case of the ice sheets from 10 or 15 years ago ongoing, where it's, we observe rapid ice melt events. We observe enormous heat waves like the one in the Pacific Northwest, summer of 2021. But pick your place, right? These seemingly tail risk events are are coming much more much more often, and they certainly can be catastrophic in the in the consequences, especially because of some of these like cascading correlated interactions, right? The idea that which you've you know written papers about this idea that that heat wave is most likely to happen at the same time when the power might go out, which is exactly when people most need the power to not be out, right? So, what are all the different cascading interactions across the health system, across key infrastructure and the, the economy. The common theme, right, is that the most vulnerable people tend to suffer the most. So that's sort of a, not an anti-infrastructure argument, but, an, but another thing to, of course, prioritize is just the people, right? If we can get more security, stronger networks, more uh, economic resources, better, better uh, health situation to our most vulnerable populations that will protect and give them more opportunities um, when a climate disaster happens. And of course, confer tons of other benefits um, when there isn't a climate disaster happening. So I think it's a blend of that prioritizing places and infrastructure, but then there's this sort of common theme in most places where you have these uh, highly vulnerable populations for reasons that extend beyond climate that maybe also can be invested in in a variety of ways. The social infrastructure, if you will. Yeah, great way to put it. And of course, you also need co-production for that, right? And the sort of instead of just just totally top down, as you said earlier. Yeah. And uh, what you said brought up actually another topic that I was thinking of posing, and perhaps we can skim past it, or we can delve a little bit more deeply. And that is the moral value, if you will, of the the near future versus the far future. And from what you just said, I might anticipate that one thing you could say, which is very very true, is that strengthening the social infrastructure 
and co-production of knowledge and, and that sort of thing has immediate payoffs in the near future while also improving our ability to anticipate and prepare for the far future. Mm-hmm. But I think another aspect of the question that I, so maybe I answered the question there or perhaps not, but I just wanted to add one more flavor to it, which is, I guess I was thinking kind of about how in the scientific literature, as well as in the popular scientific literature, of which there's more and more about climate, you know, 2100 is the number one year that comes up, maybe followed by 2050 and some shorter timescales mm-hmm. like 2030 commitments and that sort of thing. But does that run the risk of over underemphasizing 2100? I mean, most of the people born now will still be alive in 2100 and well past it and probably even to 2150. So, you know, given that it's sort of one less than one lifetime away, are we thinking too much about 20, 2100? Should 2200 or something else kind of be incorporated more or less? And just from your perspective as a, an author and scientist and father and all these things, sort of what is your gut reaction yeah. to that? Yeah, it's a great question. Of course, un- underlining it is this, this idea that we think for a lot of these climate hazards, they are sort of locked in probably based on what we know to persist past 2100, potentially, even if we level off emissions and even concentrations of greenhouse gases, sea level rise being the most most obvious example there. So that's you know part of the urgency of you know thinking about past 2100. I don't know the answer to that question. You know, it's such a broad None of these uh, questions question have also. answers. <laughs> yeah. You know, the one thing that I, yeah, I might add to it is this kind of point about path dependence. And if we don't focus on the nearer term, if we don't, you know, really lock in on 2030, 2035, 2040, a timescale incidentally where climate prediction, if you will, you know, has some, has some kind of limitations. We certainly know the direction of change, but the role of natural variability is still pretty large at those timescales. But my point being, if we don't quickly shore up our most vulnerable communities, if we don't demonstrate the ability to bend the curve on greenhouse gas emissions, do we really risk losing control of the narrative and sort of a cliche expression? But by that, I mean failing to convince countries to work collectively, failing to convince investors, you know, whether they're big investors or, or individuals, that the world is moving away from, say, fossil fuels. You know, do we do we risk losing control of the narrative? And there's also an adaptation narrative, right? There's a there's a narrative of societies working together to reduce exposure and to protect their most vulnerable instead of in an adversarial way, sort of focused on things like closing of borders. So these are huge, challenging questions without easy answers. But I think one of the arguments, you know, for devoting a lot of attention to thinking about the next decade or so is the sort of feeling that I have, you know, as you know, I worry a ton about, I know you do too, about nonlinearity in the climate system, climate change happening too fast. But there's also this, these possible tipping points in societal response. They can bend in our favor, but they can also, you know, bend against us. And, and, and so I think I'm not discounting the importance of 2100 or 2200, but if you accept this argument that sort of despite rapid climate change, despite a lot of climate impacts being worse than we thought they'd be, we still have hope because the social piece is showing some signs of bending more quickly towards reduce emissions. Investors turning against fossil fuel companies 
then you know that you highlight that social piece, even though we're climate scientists, and say, let's do everything we can to get some serious nonlinearity working in our favor in terms of the, the social aspects of reducing emissions and, and, and ramping up adaptation. Obviously, it's a lot of lip service. We don't know exactly how to do it, but that's kind of our best hope. So we still need to think about 2100. But yeah, I guess that's one of the reasons I'm sort of very focused on the next decade or so, even though there's real limits to our climate predictions in that time scale. That all sounded very compelling. And 2100, it made me think of an analogy where 2100 is maybe the the end of the semester. And if we don't take a test until then, then we're not going to be nearly as motivated to study and really <laughs> uh, figure out how to do things. Mm, but if, yeah. if we set the test for 2030, right. then even, even if we kind of slip past the deadline and we do, do it by 2035 instead, that's still probably much better than when we would have achieved otherwise. And of course, that's a very human thing that people are motivated yeah, by that's a, what's right in front of us. It's a really interesting idea. Yeah, you sort of focus, the, as I heard it, practicing, you know, getting to work. We may get some some things wrong in the shorter term, but, you know, we hear all the time about the sort of counter argument of don't build the, the seawall to the 2040 level because we, we will need a, a higher seawall later. That's true. But I think maybe we're both in different ways sort of talking about the importance of shoring up the, the seawall, if you will, the metaphorical seawall for, for 2040. And maybe you do it in a way where you build the base uh, extra wide so that when we do certainly need to make the societal seawall, whatever we're, it's a metaphor for taller for 2100, we don't have to tear down the seawall we built for 2040, but we can, we can build it up. But hey, I like your idea of, you know, it's urgent, but let's, by, by practicing now, if you will, hopefully we won't make many mistakes in the short term, but uh, for sure we can help do better for the later timescales if we don't lose control of that, that hard to define societal narrative. Right. It's about finding ways to start to break out of the fossil fuel paradigm, which there's certainly a lot of optimism these days on that. But if you look around the world and how many barrels of oil we use, which is just a mind boggling number per, per day, it's, I think it's close to 100 million yeah. barrels of oil a day. It's, it's really an enormously complicated thing. And I think you're right that it's that it's the case that regardless of what the long-term outcome is exactly, it is highly likely to be positively influenced by actions that we take as soon as possible. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And just to hit one more point in this realm, I, I think the question was influenced by a few different ideas, one of them being the classic seven generations concept from indigenous cultures in North America. One should act as a steward of the world and think about the consequences of one's actions seven generations from now. And another was a recent book about long-term thinking. And the book is a bit controversial, I think, in in some quarters, but it it raises interesting points. It's called What We Owe the Future Mm -hmm. by a philosopher from Oxford. And the argument there is that we should sort of think as long-term as we possibly can, because everything we do now, the consequences will be amplified the further out into the future you look. On the other hand, the counter-argument to that is, well, we um, have less and less connection, both personal and, I mean, even, it's hard to even imagine what 
might happen a thousand years from now or more. And also that our ancestors weren't thinking about us, presumably, you know, a thousand years ago or even 200 years ago. So what do we really owe people many lifetimes hence? Anyway, so that, that was sort of what I was thinking about in terms of all this focus on 2100. But I think you made a good case that 21st century is really important, both for us and for the long term. It's true, though, but you're right. You know, I do have young kids and you want to make sure you're not, you know, by by focusing on the next decade, it's not being callous. It's more taking these steps, these actions in the next decade to reduce emissions, you know, so that we avoid the worst outcomes. But I guess, you know, your question is really probably more in the sort of how, what, what timescale should we be adapting to, right? You know, I think it's, you know, it really is. It really is all of the above. It's interesting, you know, the point you made about sort of our, our responsibility. I mean, it seems one of the challenges I'm asked a lot, you know, as a climate scientist, how do you sleep at night? How do you not stay up all the time worrying about your kids and others' kids? And, you know, I don't have a good answer to that. It probably, you know, affects us in deep ways, just like you don't have to be a climate scientist, right, to be really worried and affected in, in deep ways about climate risks and other risks. So one of the kind of like facile things I, I, I tell myself, which may or may not be useful, but it sort of helps me is this idea, is, as you said, I think that, you know, through most of human history, there was this feeling that you weren't guaranteed 10 years, 20 years, you know, 50 years. So in a, in a certain sense, you know, maybe there was sort of a false construct for a while is this sense sort of through technology that we weren't vulnerable, right? And and different people differ, even when we might have seemed really invulnerable. The threat of nuclear war was was there, it's still there, right? In a sort of hard to quantify way. Some people worry about it, some some don't. Even if you accepted that premise that through a lot of our history there was that sort of feeling that you and your loved ones could be sort of wiped out at any moment. What does feel different, right, is this idea that the impact that we have on the broader environment and humans across the entire globe, you start to raise really interesting questions about the selfishness of our species relative to other species and relative to other humans outside of our sort of most immediate family, kin group, however you might define it, sort of way over my area of expertise. But how do you make people more motivated to care about those who, you know, maybe don't live right near them and, and kind of look just like them. I think hopefully in some ways society is getting better and, and moving in that direction. There's certainly things we can do traveling, seeing what other people are experiencing, hearing their stories, right? Not just a map that says, look how warm it's going to be in this place, but here's a person, right? Here's how hard they work to make ends meet for their family. Here's the intersectionality of how climate and other things are threatening them. That, I think, you know, gives us the hope of unlocking kind of empathy a little more. But this is, you know, too complex for me to, you know, the social scientists may disagree with some of that, but it's um, the sort of, some of the kind of things I think about. Actually, that takes us directly to a question that I wanted to ask. And I was conceiving of this more regarding our relationship with the natural world, but it also applies to our relationship with each other which is the balance between optimism, which you might call joy, 
and what might be variously called realism or, or urgency in climate and environmental messaging. And I was wondering what sort of what sort of mood you personally find most compelling, given that in an ideal world anyway, we would hope that everyone would connect with the natural world and then also, as you pointed out, each other on a visceral personal level and aren't, you know, to the extent possible, we want to minimize, right, this feeling like we're doing this because someone is making us and not because we ourselves get a deep like satisfaction out of it. And I think some people do feel that way, but I'm not sure looking around the world mm-hmm. that many people feel that way, at least in the US. And the question is whether they should, and if so, how we could best encourage that. Right. So on you an get individual into, or a so, sort of social sociocultural level. Right. So role of policy, role of the private sector, role of schools, right? Communities. Um Celebrities, right, who can have a lot of, of influence among among other groups. Yeah, the sort of John Muir's of the world. Yeah, yeah. I feel I lost the thread for a second. Let me let me see if I can circle back to it. Otherwise, you might have to re, rephrase the question. So you were talking about the, the oh, balance yeah, right. of yeah. messaging yes. moods and sort right. of visceral yeah. caring about the yeah. world versus you know, right. a sense that climate change or the environment is an abstract thing that's not yeah. so, deeply connected to you, who you are as a person. Probably a lot of the, the challenges we face do come from not being grounded as much in our, our immediate environment, you know, the environments that we evolved in. And, you know, that's not just a climate problem, right? Climate's one manifestation, but it's the broader ecological crisis, right? Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely the case. Taking it a little different direction, when we're thinking about optimism or pessimism, there's so much to unpack there. To what extent do we want to be authentic in communicating the our mood, right? And to be an authentic self. If you do feel pessimistic, you know, to, to convey that. On the other hand, pessimism can feed on itself and it can be self-defeating for broader society. We tend to be more inspired by those who I think are able to authentically project optimism and see the glass is half full and, you know, indicate that, you know, they truly believe that it's not too late, that we can bend the curve, reducing our emissions, that, that young people will start picking their colleges, picking their jobs, you know, picking their investments around those companies that aren't, you know, emitting a lot of fossil fuels and that are focused on protecting their, their, their workers and their supply chains from the, from the risks of, of climate change, for example. Or innovating in the clean energy space, for example, also. Yeah, absolutely. These are these these positive steps. Yeah, totally. So the other thing is that so is the goal to what extent is it to be authentic versus to convey what you sort of really believe the probabilities are that will quote unquote you know sort of work our way out of this okay versus messaging right trying to speak in ways and focus on the positive parts of the narrative precisely because uh, that increases the odds that we will get that future, right? Scientists mm-hmm. always want to, well, generalizing, but historically, the feeling of don't try to shape the future, just describe as you see objectively the sort of odds in the world that is. But of course, the, the great paradox, as you know, right, is that there's so much missing from our climate models. But one of the, one of the pieces, of course, is that uncertainty about about the most complex variable of all, right? How people are going to respond to these changing risks, respond to 
innovation opportunities um, around around mitigation and adaptation. And and um, it's a false construct to, in some sense, deny that the way we act will itself shape the future emissions that will shape those risks. So a lot of I want to reference the book and the movie Life of Pi here. A young boy, I think, is on a raft um, in the ocean and imagines that he's with this tiger um, on this on this raft. And in one sense, it's sort of like, well, that's ridiculous. There can't be a tiger there. That's wrong. But if it helps the kid survive to, in his mind, have this companion, that's sort of part of reality. Yeah, that's an interesting point you raised about the necessary objectivity of scientists versus I would maybe cast it as scientists' proclivity to be proactive. And of course, there's also the famous cliche about being the change you wish to see in the world. And I I don't know where the proper placement is kind of across that spectrum. But I mean, I wrestle with this, and I'm sure you do too. I think it's the first step is to be aware that there is such a there is such a spectrum and to think carefully about your positioning, whether or not you make a final call or whether you sort of span a range across your different activities as I feel like I do. Right. Absolutely. And, and where you can make the most valuable contributions also being true though, to what you enjoy doing. Yeah. I think people definitely pick up on when other people are enjoying what they're doing or not, mm-hmm. whether it's yeah. connected with climate or trying to, influence anything broader than a small group of people yeah i I think everyone has more fun when they see other people having fun climate change is a very serious issue and all other environmental crises in a way have been serious issues whether it's air pollution or you know ozone depletion or but yeah that recognition like like you said that whether it's politics or anything else people want to find ways to be optimistic even on what seem like the darkest days and People reward with attention and money and other things, those people who figure out how to do it. And of course, there are always false prophets. Yeah. But there are enough real prophets, so to speak, that I think this is, well, maybe I shouldn't weigh in whether it's a good or bad tendency, but it's certainly a tendency people have and will have. And so, you know, we need to figure out, I think, as a climate community, better ways to maybe leverage that inherent human nature. Totally. And it, so, and people differ, right? Some people like climate communication more. Uh, some people are better at it than others, as opposed to maybe pure research. Some people are really good at both, right? Similarly, though, on, you know, if that's the supply side, if you will, even though we're really talking about co-production where, where supply and demand are, are on both sides. But in the, in the simple example, if the climate science and the climate, climate communicators are, are the suppliers, and then on the demand side, we imagine some being facetious here sort of passive, like receivers of that climate information, well, that also is not a monolithic group, right? They're motivated by different considerations. Some people, it's the polar bears. Some people, it's, you know, hunting, how those how those things will change with, with climate change. You have to speak to what resonates with people. It's probably the same across this optimism, pessimism spectrum too, right? Pessimism probably does motivate some people. So different messages for different people. And then to what extent are you as a scientist or any kind of communicator comfortable changing the message for different audiences? Does that give up your authenticity or or is that something that can be valuable and, and, and important to do and that we can be multifaceted in our perspectives? Yeah. And we all have an optimistic and pessimistic days too, right? 
Yeah, those are some very important and I would say rhetorical kinds of questions. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly difficult yeah. to answer. Maybe as some final topics, circling back a little bit to things that you briefly touched on, but we didn't really explore in any depth. There's two of those that I, I noted anyway. One of them is how we think about what climate change means for our stewardship of the natural world. Say U.S. national parks, where certain parks exist to protect particular natural features. And if those features are threatened with large-scale diminishment or even extirpation from that area... The glaciers in Glacier National Park, maybe, National National Park, the Joshua Trees, or I guess more broadly, you know, a particular species. And we know that they could survive maybe in a different region or a different continent even. Obviously, there's a lot of complications there. But those sort of issues, I guess, to what extent is there a moral imperative? Like if we see some consequence happening to a species or an area and we can either do nothing and let our unplanned climate change experiment do whatever it does or we can actively step in and manage it, but then we sort of raise more problems involving what happens if our management goes wrong or just, you know, now it becomes a managed system and how is that really different than a city park or something? You know, what does that mean for like just how we conceive of the world, I guess? I mean, does it imply that we need to be thinking about the whole world and how all the systems interact or can we reasonably say, we kind of messed up one thing, but we don't know enough to kind of just go screw around everywhere. And even though we think we may anticipate certain, what we consider to be negative consequences unfold, we need to just let them unfold because that's the best of some bad options. Yeah. So yeah, more just, you know, huge questions there. I think one starting point is that in in some sense, they're all managed systems maybe especially now, but there always was some human component, but especially now we're, we're dominant in some of these cascading ways that, that you've studied everywhere. But, you know, that's kind of a superficial statement. You know, as you're saying, it differs a lot to the degree to which we're managing uh, some of these systems. To me, the, the quandary reminds me of when, when you brought up managed retreat. I feel like these are two examples where we've doubled down quadrupled down you know we've we've been exposing these whether it's these ecosystems or you know all our coastal properties to so much risk and investing so little in kind of protecting so on the one hand there are as you said some clear examples probably where intervention you know whether it's a new wildlife corridor to help a species reach a park further north at higher elevation where you know where it never was before probably those those types of interventions make sense but we also have i think i think it's an undeniable fact that when we intervene we grossly underestimate the complexity of these systems you know we've only scratched the surface i think i'm not an ecologist and in, in sort of understanding all the potential interactions um, between species and it, it seems to me that it's, it's also true that when we intervene it's a stacked deck. The odds are that the interventions cause cause sort of more harm. There was a time when we thought we could sort of optimize nature, mm-hmm. right? And we, we I think we learned that was wrong. But now we have this, you know, sort of special case of, yeah, but what about the Joshua trees? You know, should we, I, I think as, as you articulated, we probably do need to try to intervene and, and optimize in some of those cases. But in, in general, you know, I think our interventions are, are far more likely to cause more harm than 
and good probably, unless they're interventions of the type of less development, you know, because that's you know, yeah. the opposite of an intervention, right? Sort of stepping away as much as we can, but we can't completely, right? Yeah, all the indirect stressors, all the all the ways we as people treat each other that put others in situations where they're where they are sort of desperate and have to, you know, sort of overuse overuse resources, which we all do, right? Of course, yeah. of course. Or, or we all overuse, yeah. Hardly uh, innocent on that count. Yeah. And it's especially complicated, I suppose, because it's not even clear what the scorecard would consist of. Yeah. You know, one might say extinction of a species is a failure. But on the other hand, if a species is greatly diminished in numbers and no longer plays the ecological role it used to, even though it is still around, mm-hmm. isn't that nearly as bad? That's just one one example. You know, we have to, I think, as humans, morally weight humans the most, but then we have the issue of overpopulation. And, you know, it's probably better if we didn't have 10 billion people soon, but we can't we stop, are. you know, we can't stop that really from happening without other serious ethical issues being raised. So we're in a little bit of a bind. And I, I guess overuse of overconsumption of resources is, as you kind of suggest, is maybe the single biggest problem. Yeah, if we compare the sort of carbon footprint of someone like me, you know, living in a or house. Uh, yeah, living in a house in the in the suburbs, in my case, you know, flying far, far too much. You know, it's I don't know the numbers, but it's, you know, it's probably two orders of magnitude, you know, more emissions than some people certainly still still are still right. around the world. But on the other hand, to not be too hard yeah. on ourselves, we are we are endeavoring to make progress on these questions. And there are plenty of people who... Yeah, or not, and, right? I guess I don't want to fault them exactly, but yeah, I mean we're trying to do something about it, right? You know, yeah, and, and we're not doing everything we possibly could. Yeah, and you know, people want to have some of these opp- opportunities. So what's the balance? You know, it's um, you know that home of the future that's made with fewer fossil fuel emissions, smaller home re- renewables. If we try to deprive, if we say, you know, you need to keep living the way you've lived for the last few, few hundred years to folks, that's going to be, it's not fair and it's yeah. going to be a non-starter. So it's really challenging. Yeah. And going back to the optimism, kind of joy framing, you have to inspire people. And yeah, I just, I think that's an ethical, just cornerstone of communication and interaction that, and I guess geopolitics and all kinds of things that, People just respond so much better if you give them something to aspire toward or hope for rather than denying or squashing or whatever. Yeah. Hope, hopes and dreams, right? Hearts and minds, all Absolutely. these things. Absolutely. And so to wrap up, the other, the other topic uh, you again actually just raised very briefly, but I just wanted to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on it is the, the ethics of travel and especially air travel. And you pointed out and I, I agree that these are why I, this is how I at least like to imagine the purpose of my travel is that it increases my and people who travel our empathy for others. And in a, on a scientific level, it helps us gain a deeper knowledge of human systems. And I guess hopefully has benefits for everyone involved, both those traveling and those being traveled too. I mean, I, I guess I'm just thinking about all kinds of travel, whether for pleasure or business or science or whatever. And yeah. I guess I raised the question because there are certainly, I'm not the only person who's thought about it in a multidimensional way, of course, but much of the discussion about air travel, especially is very, you know, just focused on the downsides. And 
I think some of it also maybe is grounded in the European context where there's a pretty easy train alternative in many cases. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not not all of it. And anyway, there's just a lot of people who say air travel has all these emissions and is terrible. But I just can't help but wonder if we had an alternative world where no one traveled by air, would that really be a better place to live? I'm not sure about that. So just some thoughts and I guess just your own personal views and what you kind of practice and how you decide whether a certain trip is worth it or not. Certainly the pandemic, I think for all of us did help us see, you know, that maybe some of this travel that sort of reflexively we used to just do may not be necessary, right? To sort of prioritize, especially the kind of work-related travel rather than just sort of jumping at every at every opportunity. But yeah, we are, you know, as you said, we're a social species, whether it's um, colleagues or cultural interaction. There's no substitute for in-person interactions for those things. And yeah, I mean, I've traveled a lot with my kids, a lot of international travel. And I like to think that we mostly sort of endeavored to, to travel in ways where we got to sort of interact a lot with populations there and really see, you know, some of the some of that local context. But it's also a lot of emissions, you know, so it's challenging. But I'm glad you I'm glad you brought up that point because, you know, certainly having those those interactions was really important to me and has been really, really important in my life. And I would hope that everybody could, could you know, so many people don't get to do that kind of travel. So it's a real it's a real dilemma. I certainly need to reduce my emissions uh, from travel, no doubt about that. Yeah, and it's not it's an issue that's not black and white either, of course. There are mm-hmm. ways that one can consolidate several trips into one trip or things of that nature to at least cut down. And yeah, we're not going to reduce our emissions to the global average probably, but maybe it's, it's an incremental step that it's hard to, um, hard to avoid the appeal of incrementalism. And it's, it's a case where there's no easy substitute, right? That's one of the reasons that that air, air travel gets, gets so much, much attention. There's no, my understanding is, you know, at the margins, maybe 10, you can reduce emissions, something like 10 to 15% based on the type of plane. Maybe you can do a little better if you optimize the distance, right? There's that sweet spot where emissions per mile are a little less if the flight isn't so brief that you're spending a lot of the time rising up. Yeah. And then if the flight's too long, you basically, as you know, have so much, you know, our colleague, Ethan, Ethan Koffel's done, done some nice work in this space. If you're traveling too far, you basically need so much fuel on the plane that you're carrying all that extra weight, which causes you to burn more. So, but these are all sort of at the margins, I think, sort of 10 to 15%. It's, it's important, but it's not, it's not the majority of the, the story. Yeah. It's unlikely to offset the increase in air travel demand from Asia and Africa in the coming right. decades. Right. Not to say we won't make more progress and, and, and that there won't be disruptive increases in inefficiency or new, new types of fuel, but um, new, what's called the fuselage, new, you know, new metals in the planes and such that are lighter, but probably going to be stuck with, with a lot of emissions from air travel for, for quite a while. Yeah. So, so these are issues of enduring value here that we're talking about. I feel it's really impacted me a lot. It's you know, something you want to share with your kids. And again, you wish everyone right. could do. Yeah. Would you have had the same career if you hadn't made those connections I I and would've. had those inspirations? Yeah, I don't think I would have. You're right. Yeah. yeah. So it, 
yeah, just kind of underscores how deep some of these quandaries go, if, yeah. if I can say so. Yeah. Yeah. There are things we can all do. Eating less meat, for example, especially less red meat. It's a huge I, one. That's, right. that's something we can all do in the in the shift to renewables. It's still, for some people, you know, a little more expensive up front. Some people have to make the short-term decisions. They don't can't think about the long-term savings, and you know, it may still be more expensive to put in the the heat pump in the short term mm. for your house, or in some cases, the the electric might still cost a little more. But these are things that are that are close, right? And already kind of long term, you know, the renewables or the the less fossil fuel use alternatives already make economic sense. And it's important to highlight now pessimism versus optimism, right? The sort of sure. natural pivot to the optimism, but it's true. There are all these revolutionary transformations happening right now where soon it's already not a sacrifice. Maybe things have been pitched to us as a sacrifice, but already it can be liberating with all sorts of co-benefits, um, including lower costs to, to go towards um, renewables, for example, in many instances, but not all. Yeah. This is part of the point we're making. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a tipping point in all of this, many, many tipping points embedded in terms of both the technological and I guess in terms of food, the food science mm-hmm. development, but also in terms of just the raw accumulation of evidence. And for myself, I noticed semi-consciously that I've almost stopped eating red meat yeah. as of about maybe six, 12 months ago. And of course, mm-hmm. I knew that beef was especially was bad for the environment before that. And so reflecting on this change, I, I think it's just that it, it reached a certain critical mass yeah. of evidence that I just couldn't ignore it and the the psychological tension in my mind there's a term for this that i'm blanking on just became too too great to ignore and so i, I and felt, there's the social compelled to make a decision yeah absolutely and there's the social piece too right as there are more and more restaurants that you know aren't sort of very focused on the red meat as, as more and more people's spouses gradually uh, make a decision not to eat red meat and the term i just recalled that i was trying to think of cognitive dissonance yeah yeah you know something is bad and you do it anyway would have been a good name for a podcast but it, but it doesn't reflect well the spirit of what we're talking about i actually like the i, I like the direction you've gone in, in naming yours and i love the um i think you're going you're going deep which doesn't surprise me given what a interdisciplinary thinker and thoughtful person you are and i think that's i think that's a great contribution and I mean, hopefully other people see the value in, in, yeah. in it as well colin we didn't even talk about what nobody said the Phrase wet ball. Nobody said that we were involved. No. <laughs> yeah, just despite your foundational contributions to our to our understanding of those risks, we can leave that for some abstract yeah. future time. <laughs> Radley, thanks so much for agreeing to talk, and this has really been fascinating. And there's just so much that we we covered, and I, I'm looking forward to re-listening to it, much less to uh, getting it out into the world. And really, just I always love seeing how you're thinking about things and, and how you've managed to frame topics in a way that is really compelling. So yeah, thanks again Thank for, for agreeing to talk. It was, a, it was a lot of fun. It's nice to sort of get a chance to, we don't get to see each other as much as we, we used to, and it's, it's fun to get a chance to really devote some time. And as I say, go deep. I really like the directions you're going in here. And thanks again for honoring me with being your first guest. Of course. Thanks again, Radley, and see you next time.